Time and again, the world bears witness to truths seldom said. Lend an ear. We promise enlightened, informed conversation. My name is Robert, and this is Seldom Said, the place where conversation matters. Welcome back. This is Seldom Said, the place where conversation matters. My name is Robert. Special guest, Lucianne Beard, Lucy Beard, the executive director of the Alice Paul Institute. Lucy, I think we've reached a point in the program where it would be worthwhile sharing with the audience the history of the Institute itself, its origins, its purpose, how it's gotten to this point, and why it's the world's best kept secret for many. It shouldn't be, but on occasion it is. Right, right. Um, thanks. Thanks for that opportunity. Um, so Alice Paul has been little known and was really forgotten in history. Uh, but she is the author of the Equal Rights Amendment. And in, in the mid-80s, a group of local South Jersey women who were ERA activists got together and said, let's do something to honor what would have been her 100th birthday in 18, January of 1985. And they formed a not themselves as a nonprofit group called the Alice Paul Centennial Foundation. And they had an, an awards dinner uh, fundraising dinner, where they gave an Alice Paul Award of Courage to several people, one of whom was the astronaut Sally Ride, who was a fan of Alice Paul's and the Equal Rights Amendment, as it turns out. And that was very successful, and they decided they would stay engaged as a group um, and do um, events as the opportunities came up. But they always wanted to do something tangible to honor Alice Paul put a marker on her grave, but they wanted to do something meaningful and tangible. And in 1987, Alice's only relative who was still alive, a nephew, died without a will. And he had her things in storage and he had been um, shopping them around to different museums. Um, but, and then well, he died very suddenly without a will. So those things went up for auction. And this group of women, the Alice Paul Centennial Foundation, went to that auction. They raised enough money to save the whole collection. And they donated it to the Smithsonian Institution, Museum of American History, the Women's History Collection, and the Schlesinger Library at Harvard University. The publicity around that auction brought them to the attention of the people who lived here in what, in what had been Alice Paul's home, Paulsdale in Mount Laurel. And that, those people came to the group and said, would you consider purchasing this house and six and a half acres of land that surrounded the original farmyard and front lawn? Would you consider purchasing this and somehow using it to honor Alice Paul? So this group that started with an intention of doing something tangible to honor Alice Paul suddenly had this opportunity offered to them with a large mortgage and price tag, I would say. Um, but they, they said yes. And in January, 1990, they, they had to cobble together a coalition of local banks and a commercial loan at 17% interest, but they signed the dotted line and took care took over the care and feeding of a 200-year-old home and grounds. The first thing they did was apply for National Historic Landmark status. And initially, they were refused because there was another building um, that honored Alice Paul in Washington, D.C. So they had to come back with a study of all the different buildings that honor particular men in our history and then who have multiple, multiple NHLs in their honor. Um, 
So they they did succeed at getting the National Historic Landmark status for the house. And then they pulled together activists from all over the region, New Jersey and southeastern Pennsylvania, and said, what's the what's the best use for this place? And as a group, they, they all agreed that rather than creating only a historic house museum, Alice left virtually nothing in the way of furnishings or things that would be original to the house. The things that were in that auction were all papers from her work. Um, They said, rather than that, um, create a living legacy to her work, a place where you can keep her work for gender equality continuing into the future. So that was really the birth of the Alice Paul Institute and the leadership programs that happened here. So since the mid-90s, we have been creating leadership development programming for middle and high school girls that introduces them to the generations of women on whose shoulders they stand for the rights that, that they now take for granted, those generations that fought so hard for, to win those rights, and how to continue that in future. Um, and so everything we do, we teach through the role, role, women as role models of successful leadership and the different skills that it takes to be a successful leader and teaching each girl that she in some way, just like Alice Paul did, she in some way can make a difference. Uh, and then we, we run a lot of programs for adults from, uh, I say, ages 3 to 93 and beyond, really, um, on again, introducing women as leaders and the rich legacy of women leadership and women's history in this country. There is a poetic line, reconciling myself to the moment of my passing. The American Academy of Dramatic Arts has a questionnaire they use to interview people who want to attend. And the last question is always, you're at the gates of heaven, how would you like God to welcome you? Do you feel that Alice was satisfied? Hmm. Was she restive to her last breath? Right. That's, oh yeah, I wish I could say yes, but I I don't think she was. Um, she saw her life's work as the Equal Rights Amendment. Unlike many of the other suffragists um, on August 26, 1920, packed their bags and went home and said, we've won, it's over. She saw it as just the first salvo and a much larger, longer arc um, battle for full legal equality. And she worked for that for the next 55 years, 57 years until her death in 1977. So there are stories of her in the nursing home, uh, lobbying people, I've heard the same story over and over again when they say people meet me and they say, well, I have an Alice Paul story to tell you, and I know what's coming. I walked in the room and she asked me who my congressional representative was, and thankfully I knew who it was and could tell her, and then she would proceed to tell me that person's voting record on the ERA. And if they were a supporter, she would say, now you must call him and thank him. And if not a supporter, she would she would say, now you must go call and urge him to vote for it. Um, And you never left her presence without the promise that you would make those phone calls. So over and over, people say the same thing, that she 
somehow convinced me to do something that I had no, I had never thought of doing or thought I had the skill set to do, as in lobbying their congressman most often. So I think there may have been a sense of, um, of discontent or urgency that we must get this done. We must get, we must get this work done. Would you uh, perhaps give a little bit of a composite uh, of the life of some of the associates who Alice drew to her, particularly Miss Burns and others like her? Right. Well, Lucy Burns was quite a, um, a figure in her own right. And I really hope that there is someone out there working on a biography of her. There is a um, master's thesis that appeared in the Long Island Journal some 30 plus years ago now by Sydney Bland. And that's the only thing written about Lucy Burns. She was from Brooklyn, um, fairly well-to-do family. Her father was a banker. They were staunch Irish Catholics, and, but they believed in, in educating their children. And Lucy herself went to um, Barnard and not Bard. I'm gonna get it confused. I, it'll come to me in a moment, sorry. Um, <clears throat> Vassar, sorry. Uh, she went to Vassar and studied law as well. And then she went overseas and that's where she got involved in the English suffrage movement. Lucy Burns and Alice Paul met in a police booking station when they had both just been arrested for disturbing the peace in a suffrage demonstration in uh, London. And she, Lucy Burns, spent more time in jail for the suffrage cause than any other woman in England or America. The time she was fearless um, and was a um, consummate public speaker. Was people would travel to hear her speak. She was really very effective. And I often describe her and Alice as bookends, where Lucy was outgoing, um, fiery temper, public uh, speaking presence. Alice was more shy, tended to stay in the back room, work on the details. She was the strategist. She, and then Lucy was the enactor. Much like Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony. Each, Susan B. Anthony was the public face and Stanton was back home doing the strategy. In her case, because she was mired in childcare, not because she was shy. <laughs> Lucy Burns reminds me to some degree uh like the person at the front of the fulcrum and Alice as Bayard Rustin planning all those moves behind. Lucy in her later years does not have the placidity Alice does. She's somewhat embittered. Mm. Wherefore the divergence? What happened? We don't know. And I wish we did. Um, someone pointed out to me recently, uh, Mary Walton, a biographer of Alice Paul, I asked her something about their friendship and she said, I don't think I would call them friends. They were colleagues. Uh, there were only two people, as far as we know, who ever called Alice Paul, Alice. Lucy hmm. Burns called her Miss Paul. Uh, they stayed quite formal. Um, and we weren't sure why. They were, they were definitely strong colleagues. And then Lucy Burns, I think, pardon the pun, burned out. She left in 1918. She left before the ratification process of the suffrage amendment and went off to New York. Her sister had died, leaving very young children, and she took over their care and raised them. I believe she had some involvement in the Catholic worker movement, 
um, decades later um, because she was friends with Dorothy Day. Dorothy Day had been in jail with her uh, during the suffrage years. Uh, so, but that's all we know about her. Um, I do know about her final years and want to talk to you more about that, actually. Really, uh, please share, because it's an open book. We'd love to find out. Yes, yeah, yeah. Anyone who has information on her, I know she has one or two descendants, not her own, but through the, the niece and nephew who she helped to raise. Um, we've lost touch, and, and I would like to, to know more, anything they know about her. Most women seem to harbor a reticence to keep their correspondence. Yeah. Have you found anything that gives an inkling of who either of them were in their vulnerable moments, those times where they wanted to be with themselves because they were afraid of how they might appear? Right. I ha- we have some letters that Alice wrote home to her mother when she was in England. And um, that gives you a window into her because it's very easy when you look at picture after picture after picture in black and white of a a person who's not openly smiling. They seem to have a serious uh, and stern face to start thinking that that was their personality. Um, And only maybe a few years ago did we realize that she probably had prominent that's why she doesn't smile in pictures because that was considered unattractive, you know, back then. Um, but her, her letters home reveal a wide-eyed um, young woman who just is taking it all in and just grabbing at every opportunity for different experiences. Um, is just enjoying her life so much, um, and is the just wide open to her. And that's, that's a nicer vision than the one that the black and white photos might present. Indeed. Alice, Alice supposedly enjoyed dancing, enjoyed yes. social expression. Do you feel it was the time and place that allowed her to partake of both worlds? Or would that have fit today? What do you mean by would it have fit today? An individual... Uh, dancing the castle walk in 1914 would simply be able to parlay those steps into a separation, one gender from the other. An individual dancing today would have a difficult time ignoring and not portraying the sexuality of a performance. Alice seems a very private woman. Yes, yeah. Yeah, I think she was an exceedingly private woman. Um, wait, is that noise a problem? No, not at all. Okay, so I should just talk over it. Uh, please. Yeah. Um, uh, I think she was, she was a private woman, um, knowing the bit that I know, and it's all anecdotal and from, um, stories from people in the area who knew her siblings who stayed in this area it doesn't sound like she nor her, her brother or what you would call the kind of person who comes in and opens up a room. Um, they were somewhat reticent, um, more serious. She had a sister who was considered the, the um, and Alice wasn't that way. Alice was more withdrawn. 
and just not as forthcoming in a crowd. Um, she was very close to her mother. Her father died when she was up in college, but her mother lived for another 30 years. And um, she was always very close to her mother and probably revealed the most to her mother. We, we have a few letters, but she's young at the time. And what I would dearly love is to see more letters when she's older. Um, I think as the family aged, as her siblings aged, she was more in a uh, caretaker role of her sister, for instance. I've seen let letters between her and her sister where it's almost like her sister is reporting into her on what she's spent on a property, what what improvements she's on the property she owns, that kind of thing. So you, you get the sense that Alice is the senior sibling, not just by age, but just in, in all other ways as well. Do you feel there's a kind of comparison between the latter years of Lucy and the latter years of Alice in that for Alice Paul, we consider those first 50 years as being incredible and the last 50 years to being something that we can pursue and research. And yes. by the way, I'm just noticing the clock popped up. Right. It's indicative right. of a good interview, a solid one, a fascinating one, fascinating oh, figure and you're you. presenting her well. Oh, thank you, thank but you. We'll, we'll come back and I'd love to start talking about those last 50 years, which were not meaningless. Right. He was uh, a bit of the firecracker till her last breath. Right. So when we come back, we'll talk about Alice Paul. We'll talk about the suffered struggle, how she excelled and succeeded, and how she pointed herself to new tomorrows before time ran out. This is Seldom Said. My name is Robert. This is Seldom Said with Robert Amato. Welcome back. This is Seldom Said, the place where conversation matters. My name is Robert. Special guest, Lucy Ann Beard, Lucy Beard, the executive director of the Alice Paul Institute. Lucy, I think we've reached the point in the program where it'd be worthwhile sharing with the audience the history of the Institute itself, its origins, its purpose, how it's gotten to this point, and why it's the world's best kept secret for many. It shouldn't be, but on occasion it is. Right, right. Um, thanks. Thanks for that opportunity. Um, so Alice Paul has been little known and was really forgotten in history. Uh, but she is the author of the Equal Rights Amendment. And in, in the mid-80s, a group of local South Jersey women who were ERA activists got together and said, let's do something to honor what would have been her 100th birthday in 18, January of 1985. And they formed a not themselves as a nonprofit group called the Alice Paul Centennial Foundation. And they had an, an um, awards dinner uh, fundraising dinner, where they gave an Alice Paul Award of Courage to several people, one of whom was the astronaut Sally Ride, who was a fan of Alice Paul's and the Equal Rights Amendment, as it turns out. And that was very successful, and they decided they would stay engaged as a group um, and do um, events as the opportunities came up. But they always wanted to do something tangible to honor Alice Paul put a marker on her grave, but they wanted to do something meaningful and tangible. 
1987, Alice's only relative who was still alive, a nephew, died without a will. And he had her things in storage and he had been um, shopping them around to different museums. Um, but, and then well, he died very suddenly without a will. So those things went up for auction. And this group of women, the Alice Paul Centennial Foundation, went to that auction. They raised enough money to save the whole collection. And they donated it to the Smithsonian Institution, Museum of American History, the Women's History Collection, and the Schlesinger Library at Harvard University. The publicity around that auction brought them to the attention of the people who lived here in what, in what had been Alice Paul's home, Paulsdale in Mount Laurel. And that, those people came to the group and said, would you consider purchasing this house in six and a half acres of land that surrounded the original farmyard and front lawn? Would you consider purchasing this and somehow using it to honor Alice Paul? So this group that started with an intention of doing something tangible to honor Alice Paul suddenly had this opportunity offered to them with a large mortgage and price tag, I would say. Um, but they, they said yes. And in January 1990, they, they had to cobble together a coalition of local banks and a commercial loan at 17% interest. But they signed the dotted line and took care took over the care and feeding of a 200-year-old home and grounds. The first thing they did was apply for National Historic Landmark status. And initially they were refused because there was another building um, that honored Alice Paul in Washington, D.C. So they had to come back and study of all the different buildings that honor particular men in our history and then who have multiple, multiple NHLs in their honor. Um, so they, they did succeed at getting the National Historic Landmark status for the house. And then they pulled together activists from all over the region, New Jersey and southeastern Pennsylvania, and said, what's the, what's the best use for this place? And as a group, they, they all agreed that rather than creating only a historic house museum, Alice left virtually nothing in the way of furnishings or things that would be original to the house, the things that were in that auction were all papers from her work. Um, they said, rather than that, um, create a living legacy to her work, a place where you can keep her work for gender equality continuing into the future. So that was really the birth of the Alice Paul Institute and the leadership programs that happened here. So since the mid-90s, we have been creating leadership development programming for middle and high school girls that introduces them to the generations of women on whose shoulders they stand for the rights that, that they now take for granted, those generations that fought so hard for, to win those rights, and how to continue that in the future. Um, and so everything we do, we teach through the role, role, women as role models of successful leadership and the different skills that it takes to be a successful leader and teaching each girl that she in some way, just like Alice Paul did, she in some way can make a difference. Uh, and then we, we run a lot of programs for adults from, I say, ages 3 to 93 and beyond, really, um, on again, introducing women as leaders and the rich legacy of women leadership and women's history in this country.
There is a poetic line reconciling myself to the moment of my passing. The American Academy of Dramatic Arts has a questionnaire they use to interview people who want to attend. And the last question is always, you're at the gates of heaven, how would you like God to welcome you? Do you feel that Alice was satisfied? Hmm. Was she restive to her last breath? Right. That's, oh yeah, I wish I could say yes, but I I don't think she was. Um, she saw her life's work as the Equal Rights Amendment. Unlike many of the other suffragists, um, on August 26, 1920, packed their bags and went home and said, we've won, it's over. She saw it as just the first salvo in a much larger, longer arc um, battle for full legal equality. And she worked for that for the next 55 years, 57 years until her death in 1977. So there are stories of her in the nursing home, uh, lobbying people. Um, I've heard the same story over and over again when they say people meet me and they say, well, I have an Alice Paul story to tell you. And I know what's coming. I walked in the room and she asked me who my congressional representative was. And thankfully I knew who it was and could tell her. And then she would proceed to tell me that person's voting record on the ERA. And if they were a supporter, she would say, now you must call him and thank him. And if not a supporter, she would she would say, now you must go call and urge him to vote for it. Um, and you never left her presence without the promise that you would make those phone calls. So over and over, people say the same thing, that she somehow convinced me to do something that I had no, I'd never thought of doing or thought I had the skill set to do, as in lobbying their congressman most often. So I think there may have been a sense of... Um, of discontent or urgency that we must get this done. We must get, we must get this work done. Would you uh, perhaps give a little bit of a composite uh, of the life of some of the associates who Alice drew to her, particularly Miss Burns and others like her? Right. Well, Lucy Burns was quite a, um, a figure in her own right. And I really hope that there is someone out there working on a biography of her. There is a uh, master's thesis that appeared in the Long Island Journal some 30 plus years ago now by Sydney Bland. And that's the only thing written about Lucy Burns. She was from Brooklyn, um, fairly well-to-do family. Her father was a banker. They were staunch Irish Catholics. And, but they believed in, in educating their children. And Lucy herself went to um, Barnard and not Bard. I'm going to get it confused. I, it'll come to me in a moment. Sorry. Um, <clears throat> Vassar, sorry. Uh, she went to Vassar and studied law as well. And then she went overseas. And that's where she got involved in the English suffrage movement. Lucy Burns and Alice Paul met police booking station when they had both just been arrested for disturbing the peace in a suffrage demonstration in uh, London. And she, Lucy Burns, spent more time in jail for the suffrage cause than any other woman in England or America. The time she was fearless um, and was a um, 
consummate public speaker was people would travel to hear her speak. She was really very effective. And I often describe her and Alice as bookends where Lucy was outgoing, um, fiery temper, uh, speaking presence. Alice was more shy, tended to stay in the back room, work on the details. She was the strategist. She, and then Lucy was the enactor. Much like Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony, each Susan B. Anthony was the public face and Stanton was back home doing the strategy. In her case, because she was mired in childcare and not because she was um, shy. <laughs> Lucy Burns reminds me to some degree uh, like the person at the front of the fulcrum and Alice as Bayard Rustin planning all those moves behind. Lucy in her later years does not have the placidity Alice does. She's somewhat embittered. Mm. Wherefore the divergence? What happened? We don't know. And I wish we did. Um, someone pointed out to me recently, uh, Mary Walton, a biographer of Alice Paul, I asked her something about their friendship. And she said, I don't think I would call them friends. They were colleagues. Uh, there were only two people, as far as we know, who ever called Alice Paul, Alice. Lucy hmm. Burns called her Miss Paul. Uh, they stayed quite formal. Um, and we weren't sure why. They were, they were definitely strong colleagues. And then Lucy Burns, I think, pardon the pun, burned out. She left in 1918. She left before the ratification process of the suffrage amendment and went off to New York. Her sister had died, leaving very young children, and she took over their care and raised them. I believe she had some involvement in the Catholic worker movement uh, decades later um, because she was friends with Dorothy Day. Dorothy Day had been in jail with her uh, during the suffrage years. Uh, so, but that's all we know about her. Um, I do know about her final years and want to talk to you more about that, actually. Really, uh, please share, because it's an open book. We'd love to find out. Yes, yeah, yeah. Anyone who has information on her. I know she has one or two descendants, not her own, but through the, the niece and nephew who she helped to raise. Um, we've lost touch, and, and I would like to, to know more anything they know about her. Most women seem to harbor a reticence to keep their correspondence. Yeah. Have you found anything that gives an inkling of who either of them were in their vulnerable moments, those times where they wanted to be with themselves because they were afraid of how they might appear? Right. I ha we have some letters that Alice wrote home to mother when she was in England. And um, that gives you a window into her because it's very easy when you look at picture after picture after picture in black and white of a, a person who's not openly smiling. They seem to have a serious uh, and stern face to start thinking that that was their personality. Um, and only maybe a few years ago did we realize that she probably had prominent that's why she doesn't smile in pictures because that was considered unattractive, you know, back then. Um, but her, her letters home reveal a wide-eyed um, young woman who just is 
taking it all in and just grabbing at every opportunity for different experiences, um, is just enjoying her life so much. Um, and is it's just wide open to her. And that's, that's a nicer vision than the one that the black and white photos might present. Indeed. Alice, Alice supposedly enjoyed dancing, enjoyed yes. social expression. Do you feel it was a time and place that allowed her to partake of both worlds? Or would that have fit today? What do you mean by would it have fit today? An individual uh, dancing the castle walk in 1914 would simply be able to parlay those steps into a separation, one gender from the other. An individual dancing today would have a difficult time ignoring and not portraying the sexuality of a performance. Alice seems a very private woman. Yes, yeah. Yeah, I think she was an exceedingly private woman. Um, wait, is that noise a problem? No, not at all. Okay, so I should just talk over it. Uh, please. Yeah. Um, uh, I think she was, she was a private woman, um, knowing the bit that I know, and it's all anecdotal and from, um, stories from people in the area who knew her siblings who stayed in this area. It doesn't sound like she nor her, her brother or what you would call the kind of person who comes in and ends up a room. Um, they were somewhat reticent, um, more serious. She had a sister who was considered the, the um, and Alice wasn't that way. Alice was more withdrawn and just not as forthcoming in a crowd. Um, she was very close to her mother. Her father died when she was a, in college, but her mother lived for another 30 years and um, she was always very close to her mother and probably revealed the most to her mother. We, we have a few letters, but she's young at the time. And what I would dearly love is to see more letters when she's older. Um, I think as the family aged, as her siblings aged, she was more in a uh, caretaker role of her sister, for instance. I've seen let letters between her and her sister where it's almost like her sister is reporting into her on what she's spent on a property, what what improvements property she owns, that kind of thing. So you, you get the sense that Alice is the senior sibling, not just by age, but just in, in all other ways as well. Do you feel there's a kind of comparison between the latter years of Lucy and the latter years of Alice in that for Alice Paul, we consider those first 50 years as being incredible and the last 50 years to being something that we can pursue in research. And yes. by the way, I'm just noticing the clock popped up. Right. It's indicative right. of a good interview, a solid one, a fascinating one, fascinating oh, figure and you're you. presenting her well. Oh, thank you, thank but you. We'll, we'll come back and I'd love to start talking about those last 50 years, which were not meaningless. Right. He was uh, a bit of the firecracker till her last breath. Right. So when we come back, we'll talk about Alice Paul, 
We'll talk about the suffered struggle, how she excelled and succeeded, and how she pointed herself to new tomorrows before time ran out. This is Seldom Said. My name is Robert. This is Seldom Said with Robert Amato. We are back. This is Seldom Said. My name is Robert. This is the place where conversation matters. Let's not waste any time and get into what has been a fascinating discussion of one of the great persons in American history, not male, female, not man, woman, persons, Alice Paul. The suffered struggle, Lucy, for some like Elizabeth Cady Stanton, it was something to be dealt with specifically in certain times and places. For Alice, it was all encompassing. Do you feel that Alice's view was more conducive to the ERA today? Or would one rather argue for state-by-state passage? Hmm. I, yeah, I don't think the ERA was thought of initially as a constitutional amendment. So um, I don't think that it's com- comparable. The suffrage movement was started as a state-by-state campaign. Indeed, yes. We'll get it in states as we go. Um, then it was Susan B. Anthony who came up with the idea of the constitutional amendment and gave it to all the states at once uh, that way. And that was the, the tactic that Alice Paul adopted the minute she got involved with the suffrage movement. Are you amenable in any way to either approach to taking the next step? 38 or 50 states or simply the nation at large? Right, for me today, yes. And, and many, many states, and I'm sorry, I can't recall exactly how many right now, many states do have an equal rights amendment in their state constitutions. Every country that has written a constitution since World War II has one. We're one of the few that doesn't, actually, in our national constitution. We don't recognize reality. There are countries that are considered to be fundamentalists that simply do not disavow the value of women. Do you feel it's an inherent weakness in the tapestry of the American character? Ooh. Now, now you'll get me on shaky grounds. But <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I do think it is just sort of the stubborn um, sore spot or something that, that it isn't codified. Um, whereas everything else is. It's, um, so yes, I think it's something uniquely American. Um, maybe not uniquely, but the fact that we haven't done anything about it in our law, in our central body of laws, is what's unique. I wonder if we can picture Alice toward the end of her life as to whether she considers herself to be quintessentially American, because she travels here, there, and everywhere. There is that marvelous phrase, and I've overused it on this program, but Citoyen de Le Monde, did she consider herself in your mind as simply a citizen of the world who happened to live in the States? Hmm. I think at certain points in her life she did, yes. In the late 1930s, she created the World Woman's Party um, as a branch of the National Woman's Party, the organization she and Lucy Barnes had started back in 1914. Um, but the, the goal of the World Women's Party was to work for gender equality on the international stage. And for two years, she lived in 
uh, Geneva, Switzerland, where the League of Nations was meeting. And she was in, I think it was the high point, uh, one of the high points of her life. She was in daily meetings with delegates to the League and working on um, the League accepting gender equality as a provision in its charter. And that's how so many other countries have come to put gender equality in their, their constitutions because they, they, those constitutions were written by people who had served at the League and were influenced by those conversations they'd had with Alice Paul. She had an international influence um, in many ways than the one she had here in the States. So I think she may have thought of herself as a citizen of the world, definitely a citizen of Europe and America. I don't know if that extended beyond Europe. And there are many women in public life who often take the position that being a politician, being a spokesperson, being an actor or actress, whatever the case might be, is not as difficult as being female and presenting a formative view. If you were to compare 1919 and the era of Alice Paul with our world today, would you vouchsafe that it's as hard? Um, I would not, but that's because I see the world for women in 1919 being so prescriptive and so limiting. And I don't, and, and that's, to me, is a hardship. Other people find security in that, but I do not. And today, while there are great challenges for women, we do have more agency. We do have, I do believe, the general attitude toward women in, is a better one 100 years later. Takes a while, but, you know, gradually. I see that as progress. There seems to be a certain, and please clarify if you either agree or disagree, there's simply a, a certain vague profiling of the women's struggle. One can say Juneteenth, uh, one can say Watch Night, New Year's Eve for the Freedom of the Slaves. One can talk about Lespira and Latina women and men. There is something nebulous about the gender struggle that makes it difficult on occasion for many to pin down and promulgate. Do you feel that's the case? Yes. <laughs> There's a short answer. Yes, I do. I, <laughs> and maybe because it um, extends from, you know, the great wide world into the individual home. and Everyone has a different interpretation along the way. But yeah, I definitely think that it's harder to put a moment to, to put a date to, um, and it seems to be so ubiquitous and just with us at all times. Away from it. <laughs> Can you picture Alice as a reflection of these times and how she might approach them? I think I would just extrapolate from what she herself said over at different points in her life. She was frustrated and, and getting older, um, but she was frustrated in the 1960s by the second wave feminist movement saying, you're trying to do too many things. You're trying to address too many issues. Work on one thing. Um, and for her, that was the Equal Rights Amendment because she fully believed that if you got gender equality, a guarantee of legal equality into the Constitution, 
then other things would fall into place. That you would have a place, you would have the courts to go to for um, an answer to inequality. Um, so she felt that you had to be single focused where you'd get anything done. I think she would be saying the same thing today, 50 years later. So she was an acceptor of systemology. She wasn't the revolutionary who stepped away. She wanted to clean the glass rather than break it. Yes, definitely. Yeah. So a woman with a reticence and a reservoir of patience that we don't often notice. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, she's, she was considered radical, and probably that surprised her more than anything else, that she would be considered radical, because I think personally, she was quite conservative. And um, as I said, shy and withdrawn. And that's not how you picture a radical. But because things were so prescribed for women's behavior at the time, those, her tactics were considered radical. Do you feel she was a consummate actress? I think there were times that she was forced to act and that was when she had to take a public face and be out speaking in public. Um, that, that was a challenge for her. I think her daily life was very much her own, that she was uh, not acting then. I think that, she, that, that was quite genuine. It was her. <laughs> there is a, a poignant series of pages and a number of bi- biographies of her where she does have a suitor, where she is interested, where there are lingering glances and touches and sitting there quietly in a room. I was reminded that uh, it's perhaps a, an awkward comparison, but of Dolores Hart, who retired to a convent after being proposed to by someone she cared to that she wanted to say yes to. Do you ever feel that Alice mortgaged everything? her own happiness, including? In a sense, yes. Uh, There was, I saw at one point years ago, an an interview with her in the 1950s, I'll say, in which she says, and I'm, uh, this is not a direct quote. Um, She says that a woman has to make a choice because she's not allowed to do both. And she can either have a career and a cause that she cares about, or she can marry. And that we won't quality mm. until she can do both. Um, and then the interviewer su- summarizes and says, well, for us, it's what she made. And that was for the cause, um, that she was her cause. She just subsumed herself into the cause. Mm. It seems to be a high price for women to pay. I was just thinking of the quote uh, attributed to Greta Garbo, just wanting to step away from the theater because she simply wanted to find a way to be Greta Garbo. And uh, one wonders if we'll progress to the point where I can be politician, I can be spokesperson, I can be personality, and no one will ask me to be either at a given moment. Right. I I think we're already on the way to that. And it just takes some role models along the way. We need to see that woman president we need, who also has a happy marriage. We need to see, and we need to see the woman president who's not married. You know, we need to see women in different places, uh, in different roles. Um, and, and we're already seeing it. 
And I think it'll just get to be more and more as we go forward. We're, we can't go forward without everyone being engaged. It's by not engaging everyone to address the things we, sh- we need to fix and change. Intriguing. I had once mentored a student uh, and asked her if she wanted to do the research to write to Gloria Steinman. And uh, Ms. Steinman wrote back and answered her questions. And she said at times she didn't like the cigarette to be lit. She didn't like the door to be held. She didn't like the chair to be pushed. And because she felt that in some way it was indicative of a lesserness of her personality. Was Alice a feminist to the point that she turned away from her femininity to find something more cursive? Hmm. I'm not, I don't feel qualified to answer that. I'm trying to think of anything I've read or heard about her in relation to men who might be holding doors or pulling chairs. Well, she didn't smoke, but um, I think she was always in the company of women, you know, and in everything I've read. But she was formal. Uh, I don't know if this is answering your question, but she did have a formal manner about her that would have expected you to follow the, the, the better etiquette, I'll say, or the more yes. etiquette. She's a portrait that's made in profile. Yes. I have seen very few pictures of her looking into the camera. Her eyes were very arresting to many who saw her, but she's always like a figurative stamp looking sideways at a world at large that we can't see. It's fascinating. She's a very intriguing person. Yeah, yeah. Yes, she is, and it's true. There are so many photographs of her where you're right, she's looking off to the side or she's in profile. Perhaps. (laughs) Indeed. Perhaps in the moments we have, and I fear there are not as many as I'd like, can we talk about the ERA and what the Institute is doing to promulgate and pass it? Right. Um, Well, the first thing we're doing as a nonprofit organization is education. Um, So few people know about the ERA or know what it is. Um, there were surveys done oh, almost 20 years ago now asking people, do you believe that the Constitution should guarantee legal equality, whether you're a man or a woman? 98, 99% of the respondents said, of course, yes. You can't get that many people to agree that we need air to breathe uh, just through a contrary factor, contrariness factor in surveying. Um, but then... The big issue is then you ask them, do you think the U.S. Constitution does guarantee legal equality regardless of your sex? And 89%, yes, they just assume it's there. So we have to get over that hurdle of educating people that it doesn't. There is no guarantee in our Constitution that you cannot be discriminated against based on your sex. Um, So we have a website, the Equal Equal Rights Amendment.org, Uh, that shares a lot of educational information about the Equal Rights Amendment, what what it would do if we had it, why we need it, um, who supports it, who doesn't, what the history is, because very few people unfortunately understand our constitutional amendment process and ratification process. So we explain that um, and, and then keep people up to date on where it's at. 
Um, in it came out of Congress. It was passed by Congress in 72. It was given a time limit of uh, eight, seven, and then 10 years to pass. And, it, and by passing, I mean 38 states needed to ratify it. By the time of Alice Paul's death in 1977, 35 states had ratified it. There were only three more needed. Alice herself in 1972 understood that, that the amendment placed on its passage, that it had a time limit, would probably kill it. Uh, she was quite upset when it passed out of Congress. Mm. Um, so, in, as I said, she was lobbying from a wheelchair in a nursing home for people to support the ERA and to urge their state legislators to vote on it. But in 1982, the time limit ran out. It's still only 35 states, so it, it did not pass. So there has been a move in Congress every session since 1982 to reintroduce the ERA. And then in the late 1990s, we had the most recent amendment to the Constitution pass, and it's called the Madison Amendment because it was passed by the Congress for ratification when Madison was a president. Um, so it was, all, it was over 200 years or almost 200 years old when it was uh, ratified by the final states. And considering that, um, that, that passage, a new bill came out in both houses of Congress and has been coming up every session for the last 20 years saying, remove the time limit, strike down the time limit, and then it'll, and ratify the amendment. And in the last two, three years, three more states have ratified. So we're now at 38 states having ratified the amendment to get the time limit struck down. Unfortunately, the time limits have struck down yes. our own discussion. <laughs> I have the feeling that if I were to meet either yourself or Alice Paul, I might ask you to dance, but first I'd ask if the chair were taken. <laughs> you both have a certain strength. Our guest, has been, our guest has been Miss Lucianne Lucy Beard, director of the Alice Paul Institute. This is Seldom Said. My name is Robert. Mm -hmm.